came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1980. Hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now. My name is Will. And on this episode, we'll be speaking with hip-hop legend Sir Mix-a-Lot. We'll learn about his 1970s and 80s musical influences and the social messages hidden in his songs. If you enjoy our chat, please follow our show on the audio platform you're listening to right now. Because each week, we celebrate another aspect of 1980s media and its influence today. Okay, let's talk with Mix. I don't know if there's any other rappers that have ever been knighted in the way that you have. have there? Mm. I guess, I guess I was kind of knighted. I, I, yeah. I, uh, I think the joke was taken seriously by some people too. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. Our show is about uh, our focus is on 1980s pop culture. We are confident that there never has been 10 years where so much art, culture, technology has ever been born as in the 1980s. And I think I challenge the original Renaissance going back Whenever that was, no mm. skeptical. You look skeptical. Well, when you said technology, I had to go. Well, yeah, technology. I'd probably say nineties, two thousands, but music. I'd probably say the sixties might give them, might give the eighties a run. But uh, yeah, but see, you, ha- you got to pull from different decades. I'm saying in one decade, yeah. when you look at all these different areas, you know, I think it's just so many breakthroughs. That's gonna be true. And I think it's amazing to have been alive during a period of time where there wasn't hip hop. And then there was hip hop. What does pre hip hop look like for you? What music are you into? What art are you into? I'm glad you asked that question. I don't get that very often. Hip hop, the first hip hop song I ever heard, anybody not from maybe the East Coast would say the same thing was Rapper's Delight. Sure. Sugar Hill Gang. That was 1979. Right. And um, I remember thinking, I didn't think of it as a genre. Mm. I just said, oh, there's this group. There's this group called called Sugar Hill Gang, and they do this thing where they rhyme all the time. That's all. That's how I just looked at it in that little small window. Right. Because rap wasn't technically wasn't a genre out here in Seattle yet. Sure. Um, So before so before hip hop, I was listening to a lot of Parliament Funkadelic, Mm. you know, Bootsy Collins, James Brown, um, a lot of that stuff. And then what really got me into hip hop besides hip hop itself was Kraftwerk. If you think about it, Kraftwerk. I mean, go back and listen to Planet Rock and then listen, listen at numbers and Trans-Europe Express. And, right. you know, you, you'll find that the melodies in Trans-Europe Express, the beats from numbers. Right. Um, listen to Scorpio by Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five. You could hear, you know, Pac Jam by the Johnson Crew and all that stuff came kind of from that techno vibe uh, that the Germans had popped up with. Right. And so it was it was a combination of stuff and everybody was kind of thrown in against the wall at that time. So there was no, how could you be a sellout for a genre that just started yesterday? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody was doing, just trying to come up with their own thing. And it was, um, wasn't about money yet, at least, especially on the West coast. So it was really just us um, trying to figure it out. And I, I immediately jumped in with both feet. I didn't want to do music before I heard hip hop. Yeah. I saw craft work once and they were playing these little boxes that looked like <laughs> drum machines or something. And, right. and I'm like, Oh, they don't have a band. You mean yeah. I can do this? That's where it came. Really? Yeah. That's what I was wondering because you know, we've spoken to a few people on the show about punk rock. And one of the things associated with punk rock is punk rock is the 
DIY nature of it that, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, you had folks in garages making their own music and, you know, sort of a rejection of rock and roll from the fifties. But I don't hear much talked about the DIY nature of hip hop because you had folks in bedrooms, kitchen tables, making their own music. And, but it's fascinating to me. It's like, I don't recall or remember or know how the information got passed around pre-internet that folks could learn how to create this music on their own. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought this point up because I've been a DIY guy from day one. Yeah. Um, and we, we, everybody in hip hop was, and so they'll say, well, they had garage bands. Yeah. But those garage bands got signed to deals and then they went to big studios. Mm, Right. Even when the rappers had deals, they were Mm. still DIY. They were still programming drum machines in the bedroom, sometimes printing tracks in the bedroom and then taking it in. Depends on what era we're talking about. But in my era, I I did everything I could at home on a four track cassette deck. Mm. Um, (laughs) And that didn't sound good enough to go to wax. So I ended up uh, recording with a guy named Terry Date, who did a lot of the early grunge stuff also. And uh, he taught me a lot about mixing. And then I started to do it myself. I found a uh, MCI two inch tape machine. Um, It was broken. The guy just wanted us to move it. I moved it right to my house, <laughs> went inside of it. I found that it had a, a DC power supply. So basically it was ten, turning AC to DC. And it was, I, th- I, I want to say it was some weird number, like 48 volts or something like that. And that's all it was wrong with it. Hmm. I, I fixed, I've been in the electronics since I was 13 years old. I fixed it and the rest is history. That's when I started recording, making actual records in my uh, basement. So does that mean, had you not gone into music, that uh, your future may have been in electronics? Oh, oh yeah, that's easy to say. If I, if I took this took this camera and walked in my, not, I'm in my studio now, but my other two rooms over there is all electronics. Yeah. I, I built RF amplifiers, I, mm. all kind of stuff, you know, but that's really what got me into this music. I mean, my studio is full of stuff that I wired. Nobody wired anything here, right. you know, because I want to know it. On your early, you know, and, and folks may think it was just, you know, sort of consistent with the hip hop uh, braggadocia of that uh, on your albums where it would say written, composed, produced, programmed, performed and engineered by Mix-A-Lot. It's in fact true. Yeah. So yeah. was there a reason, was it that, not that you just necessarily didn't trust anybody, but maybe the quality control was easier if it was just you or did you not have a circle that maybe included like-minded people who knew about the genre or the technology? <laughs> Dude, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I, um couldn't afford it. Yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't afford to go into a, a studio and pay somebody, you know, a couple hundred bucks an hour. I got to pay $150 yeah. oh, for, for a reel of tape. Yeah. So I just said, you know what? I got a tape machine. I could buy the tape yeah. and I tried to figure it out. I, my first two records sounded horrible. I ain't going to lie to you. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> well, that's because you like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, it sounded bad, but yep. I started to learn. And when I got around Terry Day at that time, I could afford it. And he said, dude, this music is still probably better done at your house. Yep. And he showed me what compression was and how to use it and all that stuff and, and gates and reverbs and how to use a reverb sin as opposed to running a vocal straight through the reverb and then trying to dial in the balance mm. in the reverb itself. Wow. <laughs> as opposed to a sin, you know, down the mixer chain right. or whatever. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I learned all that stuff from him. And, uh, and then I uh, every album I've done, every single one I've done at home. Wow. I talked to Harold Faltemeyer a few months ago and he said he still has his original gear. Do you still have your original gear from uh Swaz and a uh, seminar? I have some of it. Yep. I have some of it. I do have a, a four track cassette, uh, but it's not the original one, which was a Polaris. Think about mm. it. Polaris makes jet skis. <laughs> 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 they made a four track cassette track. deck. So I still have a four track cassette deck. I, I got rid of my Fostex. I had a Fostex quarter inch 
reel to reel, right? I had one of those and got rid of all that stuff, but I rescued some of that old stuff. And my God, it was terrible. I, I can't believe how bad it sounds. You know, I listened to it now and it's like, damn, somebody in mastering did a good job because, yeah. wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I read that um, with Square Dance, the reason you did that sort of uh, chipmunk voice, you know, where you sped it up or you slowed it down and then, well, no, you sped it up, I guess, was because you didn't really want to be a rapper. Right. But at some point, it seems like you do. You, you start f- sort of finding your own or finding your sort of, you know, voice, I guess. I, yeah, I didn't want to rap, you know, I wanted to be, because you got to remember, the early days of hip hop, yep. the Sugar Hill Gang aside, um, Grandmaster Flash sure. and the Furious Five, ah. you know, you had, you know, you had DJ She's, all these, the DJs were the mm. stars. Right. So, you know, they would do songs about the DJs. I wanted to be the DJ, right? So I worked <laughs> with a couple other guys and, and uh, that didn't work out. And as I said, well, I still want to make songs. And I, at the time I was selling tapes, like remix tapes. I lived in the projects. I lived on the bottom floor. So people could just knock on my window. It was like buying dope. They just buy, you know, they'd give me, give me like 10 or 15 bucks. And I do, I do re- literally 45 minutes of nothing but mixes with their names in it and customized. I do customized redos of songs and put their names wow. in them. And I would do all that stuff and sell, and sell them. And um, that's, that's kind of what made me get in the home recording. Right. And, and go back to the square dance thing. You're right. I slowed it down and sped it up because I recorded the song high speed, mm-hmm. right? The whole song, but it sounded normal. Right. Then I turned the speed down and I do the rap. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm your big mall dropper. You know, that's how you did it. And by you sped it up, I sounded, it sounded fast. Right. It's, I, I didn't want anybody to know it was me and, and I didn't think it was going to sell. And then square dance sold. Oh yeah. You know, like 50,000 copies. And it's like, Oh, now I got to try to do this live. Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> nah, man. So well, you said, you said this about uh, sugar Hill, you know, in, in all the early sort of rap albums, we didn't understand it was going to be a genre. So, so, we, so when you had square dance out, you didn't have a sense of how big or, or what it would be. Did at the time folks dismiss it as a sort of novelty song because of the voice? It was a novelty song. Okay. I mean, I don't well, even try to lie. About it. <laughs> people, oh, you know what? I did square dance rap. I really was thinking about the people in our community. No, it was it was a novelty song. It was some fun. But at that time in hip hop, like you said, we, I, I think at least on the West Coast, maybe yeah. we didn't quite know it was a genre yet. Mm-hmm. It was already, a, it was a genre in the seventies in New York. It yeah. just, we didn't hear about it, you know? So it still was fresh to me. Yeah. It, was, it was everything on Sugar Hill Records and that was it. When I started to feel it was a genre, it was when Tommy Boy started putting out the Johnson Crew, Africa right. Bambot and the Soul Sonic Force, because that that really that was where I really knew I could do it because I saw, wait, you guys took what Craftwork did and it's over here now. Yeah. And I, that's when I started really investing heavily in gear. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, how you talk about Craftwork and think of it that way because I probably don't seem it. But, you know, I used to have the cardboard and the vinyl out in the street and be break dancing to Craftwork and, uh, and uh, Planet Rock and so many, but I guess what I was going to say is at the time we didn't think of the fact that how electronica made uh, for good break music just as much as, you know, an old James Brown jam would or a new, you know, song would. It just, if it had that beat, it didn't matter what the genre was. And so. it didn't. And it was really weird because if you listened to Kraftwerk pre-hip hop, yeah. you'd like it. But you try to think, how do people dance to this? Yeah. <laughs> and then hip hop comes. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. everybody goes back and grabs Kraftwerk and they start pop locking. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. I mean, I remember when breaking started, that's when I started making money as a DJ. Yeah. 
I would DJ break contests, you know, and stuff like that. And that's back when I could scratch and do all this backspin and all that. Now they, when, when they introduced the crab scratch, I said, I said, I'm done. I'm done. No more DJing for me. I'm out. Yeah. I got turntables. I ain't, I ain't pulling them back. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I didn't even have, a, I DJed a little bit too in the mid eighties. I didn't even have a crossfeeder. I just had like a, I think it was a Radio Shack mixer. It was just, you know, two tracks up and down. So you couldn't really scratch very well because the distance was you, a big distance to cover. Do you remember the flash former? That uh, yep. flash? I was just thinking about that, actually. Okay. Now check this out. Yeah. Before there was a flash former, yeah. my, my buddies will tell you this. Not that I'm not saying I introduced it to the market because yep. I didn't have the money. I took a realistic mixer. Yep. That's what I had. Right. Yeah. And I took a I took a momentary on-off button. Yep. Just a little red button you could buy for like 89 cent back then. And you know, when you obviously down is on, yep. up is off, right? So I would take that and I had a switch and I could switch it from the fader itself over to the momentary. Mm. So I'd hold it down, right. switch it over. And then I start. And everybody's like, oh, how'd you do that? And then the flash former came out and everybody's like, you had the flash former. Like, no, dude, I had that eight years ago, but it was a realistic mixer with a plunger on top. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And the flash yeah, former man. had like a power source. Um, I think because yeah, it, could, was, it was way up there a little bit. Yeah. That, that, that was, that was a little, that was high tech back yeah. then. Yeah. 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 I remember it was expensive yeah. at the time. Yeah. So when, when you're making records early on, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, and you talk about the different sort of influences you had early on. It strikes me that you had a, a way to combine these different elements and even take them to another level. Cause I think even, you know, certainly more than, craft work or some, I could hear some art of noise in some of the songs um, oh, yeah. um, and different than Arthur Baker that you pulled all these elements together and created at the same time though, within one album, you know, some vastly different sounding songs um, yeah. where you just sort of going with what you felt was, you know, this sounds good. So I'm going to just do that. Well, you know, the, what I would do in, in keep in my early days of hip hop and there were yeah. really no, there was no uh, mosaic. There was nothing I could look back at and mm. go, I got to meet those standards right. that that didn't exist. So we were setting standards, not, not trying to mimic them, right. which I think was the blessing. That's what made hip hop awesome. I think yeah. is that now it's kind of fallen into, it's a genre now. So everybody, you have to fit a certain criteria to get in, I guess, but you know, no big deal, but I, yeah, you're right. I listened to a lot of Arthur Baker stuff. I didn't really like the, uh, the dance stuff. Mm. I like the stuff he was doing that early planet rock stuff right. that, that I love that stuff. Play at your own risk and all those songs. I just studied them. Um, uh, Al Nafish, all those yep. songs. I would listen to them again and again, pretty Tony uh, down in Miami, Egyptian lover out here on the West coast. Right. Um, I would listen to that stuff religiously. Dr. Dre, when he was with the world-class wrecking crew, right. I would listen to all that stuff and, and copy it first. Yeah verbatim every note mm. i'd learn because you had it because back then you had to program the synth sure yeah so i would program the synth so i would learn something about the synth while trying to copy what they had right. and then once i figured it out i'd erase it all <laughs> yeah and then i'd make my own song right that that's really how i got into production i, I would just learn by mimicking mm. people and then then throw that out and then start making my own songs right it's amazing you say that because you, you can hear that you know you can hear that it's as if as if had I not known it, it's just as if you've absorbed, you know, just listening to hours of music. And then this is sort of the output is, you know, some these, these records. Yeah. And, and Prince was another one, even though Prince wasn't hip hop. Yeah. Prince had this, that's this, uh, I don't know, this thing that 
felt like he was outside of the mainstream, even though he was about as mainstream as you can get mm. in that era. But he didn't seem to give a damn, right. which is what I loved about him. And so I would study a lot of like Erotic City, the long version. Right. You know, every time I played it in the club, because I was a DJ then. So every time I played mm. it in the club, they would go crazy. Well, back then I knew, hey, I need that feel because yeah. that's what's making mm. people go crazy. Right. So I did this. I did this Prince spoof song called Erotic Bitches. <laughs> 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 and I, yeah, so I would do stuff like that. I'd make it just to play, you know, at the, I used to DJ at the Rotary Boys and Girls Club. Yeah. That's, that was how I would understand. And, and that yeah. is why I think DJs do the best beats. Right. Because DJs have to study what makes people mm. move. Yeah. And, and doesn't move doesn't always mean dancing either. Right. But what makes the, what makes those hands get on the floor, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you need that recipe in your in your soup. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I never thought about DJing as a sort of a. Uh, you know, a music school. Ultimate, really? Yeah. You're just, I mean, because the yeah. problem with great guitar players, right? I've worked with some, yeah. you work, they play the guitar. What's the first thing they say when you're mixing the record now needs more guitar, <laughs> right? They hear the guitar. I'm not saying everybody. I'm just yeah. saying a lot of people, the good vocalist only hears the vocal, right. the oh, bass okay. player only hears the bass, the drummer only hears the drums and the song turns into gumbo. Mm. DJs don't listen like that. Mm. DJs, can literally put a record on and look, they're doing research right then. (laughs) Everybody's going crazy. Write that down. I'll be playing that next week. And then as a producer, you go home and you went, I need to feel that midnight star had on Freakazoid because everybody jumped on that. (laughs) And I would try to make something that had that feel without copying the song. Right. Yeah. I thought, you know, I think another thing I think I learned from DJing just for hours and hours is time management. There's a lot you can do in like 30 seconds, 15 seconds before a song ends. Yeah. Find a whole other song in a crate, put it on, get it to the right spot. You know, if you just sort of breathe and just sort of, you know, don't yeah. freak out. That was the advantage of me producing when I DJed. I would, um, we would do everybody like Men All Pause back then by Climax. Yeah. And so what I would do is I did a version of Climax that I could do live. Mm. So I had the DMX drum machine oh, and okay. in the middle of the song you hear, Right. You hear all this stuff and I'm, I'm mixing a homemade freakazoid with men on pause, but I'm playing the baseline for men on pause. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I would do a lot of that live. That's where the term mix a lot came from. It wasn't about two turntables is that this guy would mix in computers and drum machines and, you know, all that stuff. I had a vision of doing that when I DJed, except one, I couldn't do it all by myself because I'm not as talented as you. And two, I couldn't get any friends to do it with me. I was like, okay, you just got to start this sample or this drum machine at this moment. No, nobody was interested. In yeah, that. my problem, people around, people around town told me I wasn't a real. Oh. <laughs> you ain't no real DJ. Oh. You playing all this stuff. So, you know, I'd say, well, let's go head up. Yeah. Because I had hand speed. Mm. That's one thing. I, I could cut all that stuff, you know, mix and all that. I just, I just thought it was boring because everybody else did it. So I tried mm. to introduce something else, which then seemed to hurt my credibility in one way and then benefit give me, give me credibility when it came to producing. So that's funny. If you think about how it is now, because the DJs are essentially, you've got, you know, these controllers, you know, you've got uh, MIDI controllers essentially for turntables or, and they try to do all these different things where they've got sound pads and samples, you know, and stems all lined up, ready to go. Yep. You know, it's fascinating to me. And I think folks that don't know your music as well as I do, or folks that have been fans for, for a long while, don't know sort of how you, you're able to, 
there's sort of these, you know, I don't know, not contradictions, but there's, you know, there's a lot of layers. You can rap about having a Benz or rap about having a hoopty. You can, you know, you know, sing about, uh, put them on the glass or you can sing about, or, you, or a national anthem, you know, where you find a way of talking about social issues in a way that's still a bop, you know, it's still folks are still going to dance to it. Yeah. Was there ever a goal, even with some of this, even baby got back. I mean, that's, a, you know, it started a whole other conversation on, beauty standards, you know, where folks, I'm sure people were thinking about it in a way or feeling uncomfortable about themselves because of what they were being held to, you know, on MTV or, or wherever. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're the first person that I didn't have to tell that to, yeah. you know, that you actually, because, because I, you know, when I wrote baby got back, the, I like big butts yeah. is a wink, wink way of getting it in the door. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's themed. If you didn't hear anything before that, the speech or anything after it, yeah. if you just heard, I like big butts, you think it's a song about butts, you're going to play it. That's what yeah. I wanted. But at the same time, there were a bunch of people keep in mind, let's go back to, I started writing that song end of 1990, early 91. Yeah. And um, I remember what, what inspired it was television. Yeah. There was, there was only, you had, I, again, I'm just being honest. Yeah. You had, um, let's see, Jefferson's. Yep. You had, so you had some black people that were seen as positive, the Jeffersons, the Cosby's that's it. Mm. But then you had Nell Carter played the, the maid that would give the white family advice from time to time. Right. <laughs> you had that, that still existed or, or when law and order launched, you know, the, the Hispanic or black streetwise hooker that would tell the cops what they needed to know to catch the bad guy. You know, it, that was all you had. Yeah. And, and so I, what I wanted to do was talk about something that would piss people off and make some happy or some people just dance to it. Totally not knowing what the song is about. What do I think of those people? I think they're great. Cause they're obviously not racist because yeah. they would have known mm. immediately. Oh, he's taking a shot at me. Yeah. You know, that oh, kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> right. But no, the song was written kind of tongue in cheek. The video was something that a lot of people didn't understand either. They thought it was just a video. Yeah. But if you look at that video, me, the whore in the video, right? I just want to have sex with this girl, right? I just want, I just love her. I love her body. I want to have sex with her. Yeah. I'm chasing her, but I'm always looking up. She's on a pedestal. I couldn't mm. get her. The two girls dissing her at the start were looking up because she was on a pedestal. They couldn't reach her. I did that on purpose. All that stuff was by design. I didn't want, I didn't want to act like I'm Malcolm X in my video. That's corny too. Right. So I just wanted to just say, Hey, I'm trying just like they are to use her, but she's not there to be used. Mm. And, and it worked. Some people got it. And the people that didn't, Oh, well, they had fun with the song. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's clever. And yeah. And again, like thinking about, you know, even going back to national anthem and songs of that era where you're again, if you don't pay attention, you're just singing along or dancing along, you know, until you hear what the lyrics are. I got some bad mail about that, though. Uh, oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I got some, that one, that one, I think I was a lot younger, obviously. I wrote that in 88. It came out in 89 on the seminar record. Right. And um, I think when I wrote it, some people thought I was somehow dissing the military. Mm. Because I talked about the stealth bomber, right. what I was talking about when I said a $650 million uh, stealth bomber fails to fly successfully, at least the first time it did fly later. Um, I was talking about that money could be better spent elsewhere. Right. But, you know, my dad was U.S. Army yeah. in Korea. You know, I mean, a lot of my friends, Marines, you know, so no, I wasn't yeah. trying to. So I think that song that was I'll blame that on me because I think it was I didn't write it thinking about who I could offend mm. I wrote it thinking about the message and that was it. I didn't think about, Hey, you may 
say one thing or you may mean one thing, but you may hit the wrong target. Yeah. And that happened a couple of times in that song, but I'm still not ashamed of the song though. Same thing with the uh, no holds barred. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's about gun control, um, but not people think, Oh man, you're with me, man. Just right. go out and shoot people. <laughs> no, 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 no. It just meant, you know, where I grew up, that's the only protection you had because right. cops wouldn't shame it up. That's what the song was really about. It's like, I got to do what I got to do to defend my household. So that turned into a political song and it was not, yeah. <laughs> it was just, this is what's really happening, you know, in, in the Brian Manor apartments yeah. in, in, in 19, you know, 78, 79, 80, you know, when I was just a kid, yeah. everybody's mama had a gun. My mom worked at the King County jail as a nurse, you know? And so every day she had that 38 in her purse and mm-hmm. walk right, right through that group of uh, shady characters, get on the bus and go try to feed me. So yeah, that's that's how you had to get down back then. You know, you made me think about like you hope things change in forty years, you know. But now I think about the issues, even national anthem. I think about how folks protesting today, uh, things they don't like about the government, for example, are just branded. There's no nuance, I guess. I'm thinking, you know, that's the sort of the common thing between national anthem. You think no holds barred, folks. More so than now, even I think they don't want to hear the nuance. It's either you're one way or another way. You're with me yeah, they make you pick a side. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's ridiculous. Um, and I hear it both ways. A lot of, you know, some of the stuff I hear, I'm like, have you done any research? Have yeah. you, <laughs> I mean, have you ever actually went out and formed your own opinion based on something you saw? Yeah. You, but people don't do that now. It's like there, we have a bunch of people, not everybody. There's a lot of people in this country though that are, I don't know if it's brainwashed. I think they have, they have a desired outcome. Yeah. Mm. And if you echo what they want to hear that outcome as they, they follow you right. religiously, tell them what they want to hear. I mean, and, it, and it's, and it's not, um, I don't think um, equality comes from a guilt trip. I think it comes from somebody proving to you that they're worthy of it. And then if you don't give it to them, they should cuss you out. Yeah. And that's the, that's a, that's a, that's probably a misunderstood part of a lot of the protests. What they were actually about was equality. Mm-hmm. If you're going to stop me in a car and this happened to me before I was in a Lamborghini, by the way, <laughs> I was in a Lamborghini, was not speeding, did not get a ticket. And the cop pulled me over, man. And it was like, I could see in his eyes what was going to happen. So I had both hands on my steering wheel. Mm-hmm. We all learned that as kids, yeah. 10 o'clock, two o'clock, Try to pull the license out before the cop walks up, because if you're digging before that cop gets there, pop. So I, he wanted me to open the door. Well, in a Lamborghini, the door's down here, the door. So I had to, I would have to reach down. No way I'm reaching down. And he went off. He went ballistic. And I was 43 years old when this happened. Mm. Think about that for a minute, man. That's not that long ago. Right. So, and I'm, and I'm wealthy and it didn't make a difference how much money I had when that guy saw a black, he just went nuts. So I think that, but I, back to my point though, I think that to get to a point where you are treated as an equal, you gotta be careful about asking for too many favors in the process because you create resentment. And so I believe in what James Brown said, literally, I don't want nobody to give me nothing open up the door and I'll get it myself. Mm. That's it. I'm a bootstraps cat. And I, and I think if you, you know, look at hip hop, look at some of the giant moguls in the business, some of the kids coming along in tech right now, they did it themselves. This, this is not some, nobody gifted them 
<laughs> to right. win their hat. So, so you don't get that sense of resentment from, you know, Joe public. Right. I think everything about your career, folks who hopefully they folks listening now even understand better that uh, everything about your career, you know, exemplifies that, that you took something that at the time <laughs> didn't exist. I mean, a genre that didn't exist and yeah. you, you built uh, a career for yourself and within that genre, uh, educating yourself along the way. And I tell you what, man, I had a lot of influences. I, you know, before hip hop, all my influences were, were, were older than me. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm. and post hip hop, man. I mean, I, I, I listen to guys, I look at cats like Drake, not just the music, yeah. just as a businessman, Jay-Z. Mm. I, I love, I love where hip hop is now. I don't have, I'm not like these old farts sitting around. What are you kids? <laughs> the kids don't know what they're doing, boy. Mm. No, no. I, I love the fact that the game has grown. Yeah. I mean, example, perfect example. Um, Gucci Mane redid Posse on Broadway. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Put it out 24 hours ago. And it's almost at 1.5 million yeah. views, right? It's like, that's power, man. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a new, that's a power that I didn't have, that we didn't have. I think the, the old record business. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. Cause it, it was, there were things I liked about it. The singers were much better because they had to work their ass off to get that deal done. Yeah. Right. So the singers are much better, but owning, owning somebody's masters for 35 years and, 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 you know, paying them, you know, 12%, you know, of what, you know, wasn't, that wasn't a gross. That was 12% of net. You know what net is? I mean, then they had this mysterious thing called independent promotion, oh. you know, stuff like that. It just, okay. So who is this guy? Oh, uh, we used uh, Joe over, over in Reno. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But he charged us a hundred grand. What did he do? Oh, you know, he worked the record and, and, you know, there's probably is no Joe in Reno. (laughs) If there is, he's probably got, you know, getting 20% just to be quiet, that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, you know, there's a lot of games like that, but I just love the fact that you look at Drake, he's booking his own shows, doing his own thing. Jay-Z is just, I mean, the guy owned title and just, ah, I think I'll sell it and get my $260 million and go do something else. (laughs) I love that. I love the power that hip hop now has. I think it's beautiful. The only problem I have, and I'm one of those old guys who says, oh, these kids don't know what they're doing, but it's not about the business. It's not even about the technique. It's about, it seems to me, and I don't listen to a whole lot of new hip hop or music. I try to dip in every now and then to see what's going on. But I find no matter what genre, it seems to me, this is just anecdotal, that a lot of it's depressing. A lot of it, it's not fun anymore. It's a lot of minor keys. <laughs> it's a lot of slower, you know, tracks. It seemed like you're talking about, you can listen to you. You can listen to any number of artists back in the day. And that no matter what they were singing about, it was, you could dance to it. You know, you could yeah. play it at a party. Now this, and they do. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because you're right. Trap, especially like when you listen to the, to the trap side of hip hop, yeah. it, it is dark. But I like it. There's something mm. about I've always liked dark melody, even though I don't do it. Mm. You know, I'm, a, I'm like a Gary Newman fan. Anything other than cars. Yeah. When you listen to Gary Newman, that stuff is dark. Yeah. Mm. You know, just these these single notes that just sound. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, ooh. you know, but I like it because it had a mood. It made me it mm. put me somewhere. Um, but when everybody sounds the same. It, it, it's almost like listening to grass grow. Yeah. <laughs> you, you almost tune out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but it's, it's a phase we'll, we'll move and everybody will be going somewhere else and doing something else. I think now to me, hope you guys are listening youngsters. Yep. <laughs> we need, we need a pure, what I mean by pure, I mean 
early Tina Turner. Mm. I mean, Gladys Knight. I mean, I mean, the staple singers, Mavis Staple. We need that voice. You get a sister right now mm. with a soulful, powerful voice with a band behind her, not trying to assimilate to today, just be you. Right. That'll hit. That'll hit. As a matter of fact, they they did that. And it was a white woman named Adele. How'd that mm. work out? <laughs> Right. It blew up. So (laughs) I I do think that that that's something that we need. And we need another good, solid, quality, anti-establishment rock band. Give me give me give me some more of that killing in the name. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Rage. Yeah. Yes, sir. (laughs) They were a good blend of that and hip hop. I mean, yeah. 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 I'm I'm crazy. I, I listen. I listen to those guys. Rage Against the Machine is like the closest thing to hip hop rock had and corn. I used to hang out with the guys yeah. from Corning. Oh, yeah. I, I love that. I love, I love that era in rock. A lot of people hated it, but I love the seven string chunky because it had rhythm like hip hop, mm. you know, and, and I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, some people like the melodic, you know, 20 years, yeah. where they go. Although that is a great song. Yeah. <laughs> like a rock is a good song. But. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Mix, I am so glad that you uh, created the music that you did back in the day and that you're still making music. And I understand you're helping a lot of other folks now capture yeah. that, that sound, taking benefit of your knowledge and your golden ears. Uh, thanks so much for your time today, Mix. All right. Thanks a lot. Hey, if you enjoyed this conversation, please follow our show on the platform you're listening to right now for more content just like it. And we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. 19, 19.